0: I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. 20 years ago, med students didn't learn much about the microbiome. Now it's a hot topic in medical education. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon.
1: The microbes that live in our gastrointestinal tract are not interlopers. Instead, they're an essential part of us. How do we nurture beneficial bacteria and other organisms to promote good health? What our microbiome loves is
0: fiber. What exactly is it, and what are the best sources?
1: A plant-based diet is the best way to get enough fiber. But has the soil our produce grows in
0: become depleted? Coming up on the People's Pharmacy, fiber, phytonutrients, and restorative farming for good health.
1: In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, a new study suggests that a very old vaccine might help people avoid COVID 19. The Bacillus Calmet Guerin, or BCG vaccine, was first tested in humans 101 years ago in Paris to protect babies against tuberculosis. BCG is still being administered to infants in countries where TB is common. A study begun before the start of the pandemic has revealed some intriguing results in the fight against COVID. Investigators were testing whether patients with type 1 diabetes would be protected from a variety of infections. People with this kind of diabetes are especially vulnerable to microbes. The theory was that BCG vaccination might activate the immune system against a number of pathogens. Some volunteers received BCG injections, while others got placebo shots.
0: Early in the pandemic, the researchers tracked which participants came down with the coronavirus. Only one of the 96 volunteers who had gotten active BCG injections was infected with COVID-19. That's about 1%. On the other hand, over 12% of those who received placebo injections caught COVID. That's at least as good as the results for mRNA vaccines. The authors conclude that, quote, The BCG vaccine effectively protects against COVID-19 and provides broad infectious disease protection. Also, The BCG vaccine is safe, effective, affordable, and potentially protective against every changing viral variant of the COVID-19 pandemic based on its broad-based protection against other infections.
1: About 30 million Americans don't hear as well as they'd like, but only about a fifth of them use hearing aids. In 2016, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine published a report calling on the FDA to approve over-the-counter hearing aids for people with mild to moderate hearing loss. In 2017, a bipartisan bill passed Congress and was signed into law, giving the FDA that authority. The agency has moved slowly, but this week it announced a final rule that will allow people to buy OTC hearing aids without an audiologist's intervention. This should dramatically reduce the cost, which is one of the big barriers to hearing aid utilization. A pair of hearing aids currently cost anywhere from $4,000 to $6,000. It's expected that the new devices will save the average person nearly $3,000 they're likely to become available in pharmacies and online by the middle of October.
0: Many Americans with hypertension don't have it under good control. Measuring blood pressure at home can give people data about how well or poorly they are doing in those efforts. Recent home blood pressure monitors have the capability of connecting via Bluetooth to smartphones for tracking, graphing, and sharing data. Do these technological innovations make a difference? Scientists at UCSF selected 2,100 middle-aged people from 23 healthcare systems. Half were provided with a standard blood pressure machine, while the other half got Bluetooth-enabled devices. After six months, the results were in. There was no difference in blood pressure between the two groups. But while this could be seen as a negative result, we think instead that it's positive. Both groups of volunteers reduced their average systolic blood pressure by more than 10.5 points. When an antihypertensive medication does that, we call it a win. The bottom line? Home blood pressure monitoring makes sense, and you don't need fancy equipment to make it work.
1: There's been a lot of buzz lately about time-restricted eating. The idea is that if you limit eating to specific time periods, you might be able to lose weight and achieve metabolic benefits. Research has been inconclusive. A new study published in JAMA Internal Medicine describes a randomized clinical weight loss program involving 90 overweight adults. They were assigned to eat their meals between 7 a.m. and 3 p.m. or within a 12-hour window. All participants had a limited-calorie diet. After 14 weeks, those who followed the early, time-restricted eating plan had lost more weight and improved their blood pressure and their mood compared to those who spread their meals out over 12 hours. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Have you ever heard about the
0: microbiome? 20 years ago, it was barely mentioned in the medical literature. If you've been listening to The People's Pharmacy, though, you know that the wide variety of microorganisms we host in our digestive tracts are crucial for our health.
1: How do we make sure our microbiota are healthy and thriving? How does our diet influence the wide range of bacteria that make their home in our colons?
0: To find out, we are talking with Dr. Will Bolsowitz. He's a gastroenterologist and best selling author. His first book was Fiber Fueled, and his latest is The Fiber Fueled Cookbook.
1: Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Will Bolsowitz.
2: Terry and Joe, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be back. It's a great pleasure.
0: Well, thank you for joining us. You know, if we were turning back the clock, oh, let's just say 20 years, uh, when when you might have been just contemplating medical school and somebody had used the word microbiome, you would have probably looked at them with a, a slightly puzzled look on your face because it wasn't part of the lexicon Now everybody's talking about the microbiome, the microbiota, the bacteria in our digestive tracts, and fiber is center stage, but that wouldn't have been true two or three decades ago. What changed?
2: A couple things. One is laboratory techniques. You have to understand that the vast majority of the microbes that are resident and a part of our body, I mean, we, we have microbes covering all external surfaces on our on our skin, in our mouth, believe it or not, our eyeball has a microbiome. Uh, but they are most concentrated inside our colon, which is our large intestine. And the issue there is that the vast majority of the microbes that reside in this location, they're what we describe as anaerobic, which means that they're not going to grow on a culture plate. So those traditional old fashioned techniques that we were still using twenty years ago, they just they weren't going to get the job done. And the other thing, Joe, is that the microbiome is chock full of information. It's an overwhelming amount of information. And the computers of the 1990s, I mean, I remember those days with the 14.4 modem, they were not going to be able to handle this level of information. We really needed progress in terms of the quality of the computers. And so things really sort of came to a head around 2006 with the development of new laboratory techniques and also the progress in terms of the um, computing power that we have.
1: So we've got this incredible scientific advance in our understanding of the microbiota. And yet what you're telling us is something that perhaps our grandmothers could have told us.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. But I think what we're doing here is, you know, there's a lot that we already knew. And in many ways, what we're doing is we're filling in the puzzle. So you kind of have a general idea of what it looks like, but now we're bringing clarity to this so that we really understand the way that the body works and the different mechanisms that are in play. And and really the big discovery is the central role that these microbes play in so many facets of human health, not just digestion, so much more, our metabolism, our immune system, our hormones, our mood, our brain health, our energy levels, our genetic code. It's all related back to these microbes. And so, yes, the solutions may be simple. And thankfully, that is the case, right? The, we don't need it to be that complicated. But the science and how we get there is a bit complex. And that's where where we're at right now is really bringing clarity to those
0: questions. Well, I, I think Terry alluded to our grandparents or our great-grandparents Um, they were pretty interested in what was going on in our digestive tracts. And they were eating a lot of the kinds of foods that would be beneficial. And that's especially true in Europe where people paid attention to poop. I mean, Germany in particular, very interested in the digestive tracts. But, you know, here in the 40s and the 50s, even into the 60s in medical school, it was like, eh, don't worry about it. Just, just eat a well-balanced diet. Well, along comes fiber fibers in and you have written about it extensively. And I guess the first question is why is fiber so important? Why did you write fiber fueled, which became very successful? And where are we evolving to today with your new book? The Fiber Fueled Cookbook, because I think a lot of people want to know, well, what should I do to make those microbes happy?
2: So Joe, the, the, the start of this story for me, as you know, but the listeners may not, I did my gastroenterology training at the University of North Carolina and in your backyard, I, I, I was in a combined program of epidemiology at the School of Public Health, along with my clinical training in the hospital. And during this period of time in my life, I was having a health crisis. I was in my early 30s, 50 pounds overweight, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, anxious, depressed, low self-esteem, despite the fact that my career was taking off. And I needed something to change. And what changed was my diet.
1: How did you realize that you needed to change your diet?
2: Well, it wasn't a part of my conventional medical training. And the problem that I had is I looked in the mirror and I saw a man that I knew this wasn't where I wanted to be. I knew that I had these health issues, the blood pressure pills sitting on the sink were the ultimate reminder and the pills and the procedures that I was taught to use as my tools as a medical doctor, I didn't want them myself. So I actually tried to exercise my way out of this problem and I failed even though I worked really hard. And things changed for me when, believe it or not, I met the person who is now my wife. But I I couldn't have known it in that moment. This was 10 years ago when we were on a first date. But I just, I noticed that she was eating differently than me. She would, we went to a restaurant in Carborough called Acme and I got the pork chop and she just ordered a bunch of sides. Like, can I have the black eyed peas, the mashed potatoes and the collards?
1: Acme does those so well.
2: Yeah. And so I said to myself, wow, first of all, who is this person? And second of all, interesting. Maybe there's something to this. She looks great. Her health seems to be aligned. She has tons of energy. I'm exhausted. I don't feel well. Maybe this convenience diet that I have been uh, using because it fits so nicely in my life because I was working so hard. Maybe this convenience diet is holding me back. Maybe this is my problem. And so the, the narrative really pushes forward from there because I think that you know, as a medical doctor, when you discover something like this, because I got my health back, I lost 50 pounds. These blood pressure pills went in the trash. And when you find something like this, it transformed my own life. And how could I sit there as a medical doctor and look people in the eye and not want to give them the exact same transformation?
0: So what was the transformation?
2: The transformation was through changing to a plant-based diet. And this was a process that took years for me to accomplish. But I transitioned away from the junk food and into eating plants. Lots of plants, many different colors, many different varieties, fruits, vegetables, whole grain, seeds, nuts, and legumes.
0: Well, I've got your book open in front of me. And the question on this page is, where's the beef? And you call it. The steak plate. But in point of fact, there's no meat on this plate. What is it?
2: So that particular recipe is actually inspired by a restaurant in Asheville, North Carolina called Plant. And they have this plate where it's a portobello mushroom that's smoked. It's juicy. It's got a meaty sort of texture to it comes with steak sauce, mashed potatoes, and some really sort of acidic, punchy collards. And it's delicious. And that's why I wanted something like that in my book.
1: Well, the pictures are beautiful, and the recipes sound wonderful. And one of the first recipes I looked at is apple pie oatmeal. And I said, oh, this is what we do with our oatmeal. Almost. You do put a little extra chia in, which I tried, and was good but what are the advantages of eating more fiber
2: there was let me just bring forward my favorite fiber study of all time this is not the only fiber study that matters but this is my favorite one professor andrew reynolds published in the lancet in 2019 systematic review and meta-analysis what that means is that he's compiling all of the available studies looking at dietary fiber And that includes the studies that say the fiber stinks and it's not worth anything. There's no bias. We're removing the bias. Let's see what this compiled data says. And in it, they included more than 130 million person years of data. Think about that. Like humanity has only existed for 3 million years. Here's 130 million person years of data. And in this study, Terry, they found that by simply consuming more dietary fiber, You reduce the likelihood of having a heart attack. You're less likely to die of heart disease, our number one killer. You're less likely to be diagnosed with three different types of cancers. You're less likely to die of cancer, our number two killer. You're less likely to have a stroke, our number five killer. You're less likely to be diagnosed with diabetes, our number seven killer. I I feel that this is an overwhelming opportunity because when we go and we look at the landscape of the United States, 95% of Americans are not even getting the minimal recommended amount of fiber, not even the minimal recommended amount. Only 5% are actually there. And so this is that ripe opportunity where I just listed five of the top 10 causes of death in America, but I could go beyond that to include two or three more that are that are there in the top 10 where dietary fiber has been shown in rigorous studies to prevent. So to me, This is something that the news agencies, I I frankly don't understand why I have to write two books on this topic. I feel that the news agencies should be, you know, pounding the gavel every single night and shouting this to the American public. We need more dietary fiber. This is important for our health.
1: You're listening to Dr. Will Bolsowitz, gastroenterologist and author. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, The Fiber Fueled Cookbook.
0: As you can tell, Dr. Bolsowitz is a fiber fanatic, in a good way. After the break, get the details on where to find fiber. What are the best sources?
1: Do high-fiber foods cause some people problems, like gas? How can we get around that?
0: Which plants do we consume
1: most often? Dr. B will share a fabulous recipe for black bean brownies. They're delicious. You'll also learn how to train your microbes
0: to love high-fiber foods without hurting you.
1: You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon.
0: This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herbs complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at gaiaherbs.com. That's g a i a herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon.
0: The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at Cocovia.com.
1: And by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at GaiaHerbs, G-A-I-A, Herbs.com.
0: Today, we are talking about fiber and phytonutrients. What do we mean when we talk about fiber? Why does a plant-based diet offer more fiber than one based on pepperoni pizza and cheeseburgers? How do our microbes respond to differences in our diet?
1: Our guest is Dr. Will Bolsowitz gastroenterologist and author. In addition to more than 20 articles in gastroenterology journals, he's written Fiber Fueled and his most recent book, The Fiber Fueled Cookbook.
0: Dr. bolsowitz I would like to start from the beginning. What is fiber? Where do we find it? What are the best sources of fiber? How much do we need? And then what about FODMAP, which seems to be the opposite of embracing fiber? So help me understand all of this, because I think a lot of people are very confused about what we're talking about. They kind of have a rough idea, you know, like fiber. Oh, that's like cereal in the morning, but it's so much more.
2: Yeah, fiber, we need to start over with fiber. We need to fire the PR agent who's been managing the fiber account for the last couple of years because got this common perception that it's boring. It's not. It's exciting. This is a game changer in science. It is, I think, incredibly sexy because of the massive benefit that you can have not only for your body, but in terms of supporting your gut microbiome. So let's take it from the top as you've suggested. Fiber is a carbohydrate. So when we hear people say like carbs are bad, well, you're, you're besmirching fiber. And that doesn't really make sense to me. Fiber is incredibly healthy. It's a part of all plants. So we don't have to look hard to find it. Every single plant has fiber, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. And by the way, mushrooms have fiber too. And they're, they're technically not plants, but I like to make them honorary plants because they offer many of the same benefits. So fiber, what's unique about it is that fiber is something that is not digested by human enzymes. We actually lack the ability as amazing and as complicated as we are, we are completely incapable of doing this. But the sort of people or party that has the enzymes, the part of us where the enzymes do exist is within our microbiome. They, they literally may have some estimates are 60,000. Unique enzymes designed to help us to break down and process fiber. So, fiber is not this inert thing that just kind of passes through us and sweeps through and comes out the other end. There is some truth to that, but actually, fiber is food, fiber is fuel for your gut microbes. And when it enters into the large intestine where they live, they apply these specialized enzymes that they have. They actually work in teams to break down the fiber. And what they do in this process is they actually consume it. They grow stronger. The microbes actually, it's like we're feeding them. So they become empowered. They become more capable of doing their job, which is supporting your health. And then they turn around and they release what are the most anti-inflammatory compounds that I have come across in my 20 years of study in medicine. Short chain fatty acids, butyrate, acetate, propionate, These are the reason that when I say that fiber protects us from heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, and we could talk about kidney disease or Alzheimer's, these short-chain fatty acids are the reason why. They spread throughout our entire body and they have healing anti-inflammatory benefits everywhere that they go. So this is the story of fiber and fiber is really critically important to feeding and fueling these gut microbes. And the problem is like, even though we are overfed, our gut microbiome is actually starving because we're not getting enough dietary fiber. So what what is enough? Well, I'm going to answer the question, Joe, but then I want to elaborate just a little bit more beyond it. So according to the USDA, the recommended amount of fiber is 25 grams for women. By the way, the average woman's getting about 15 and a half. And the recommended amount for men is about 38 grams of fiber. And the average man is getting about 18, just to a- put into context, how deficient we actually are. But if you looked at the bigger picture of the American diet, the way it looks for the average person right now is 10% plants with French fries and potato chips coming from potatoes being the number one, 10% plants and 60% ultra processed foods and 30% animal products. And the animal products, I can tell you the fiber content of animal products, it's zero. There's none. And the ultra-processed foods, typically what they do is they will strip out the fiber and then replace it with chemicals that we frankly don't really know what they do to human health. So we unfortunately are making 90% of our diet up with things that aren't necessarily supporting and nurturing our gut microbiome. If we simply make the shift, I'm not proposing veganism. I'm proposing going from 10% to 15%, or wherever you are, moving in this direction one step at a time. If we make this shift towards more plants, you will get the number of grams of fiber that you need. But the more important thing, actually, Joe, is that the American Gut Project, which is the largest study to date allowing us to connect our gut microbiome. To our diet and lifestyle patterns, showed us that the most important factor for a healthy gut is the diversity of plants in your diet. And I believe that this applies to literally all of us, no matter who you are, no matter what diet you eat. Hear me now and let this be the takeaway from today's message. You need more variety of plants in your diet. And when, if you stop counting grams of fiber, and you start counting the varieties of plants in your diet, you will ultimately accomplish this goal. And by the way, in that study, the people who had the healthiest gut microbiome were the people that were consuming at least 30 different plants per week.
1: That's quite an interesting statistic. We're going to have to start keeping tabs on uh, leeks and carrots and eggplant and everything else.
0: Well, if I were to ask you, name your top 10 most frequently consumed plants, what would they be?
2: All right. Well, first of all, I want people to know that when I propose a plant-predominant diet, I'm not talking about eating salads for most of your calories. So to me, the backbone of a plant-based diet are whole grains and legumes. And I eat those on a daily basis.
0: Such as? Give us some examples.
2: Um, So first of all, a revelation in my life has been the Instant Pot,
0: which allows
2: me to cook the most fluffy, delicious whole grains with such simplicity and ease. And so if you don't have one, um, consider investing to get one because they're great. And with the Instant Pot, I can very quickly make delicious farro, uh, amaranth, taff, sorghum takes a little bit longer, but it's quite delicious. Probably my favorite, to be honest with you, Joe, is farro. It's a, it's, a, it's a form of wheat. It's got this perfect gummy texture. It's delicious.
1: Farro, it's an Italian grain, isn't it?
2: It is. Yeah.
1: They make it into a delicious salad. Yeah.
2: Exactly. You could put it in a salad. And then when it comes to legumes, to me, variety like legumes are such a ripe opportunity. Why just do black beans when you could do black beans and pinto beans? You know, don't just do chickpeas. Like there's, you could add the you could add peas. You could add there's the five bean uh, mixes that exist. You know, to me, that's a ripe opportunity for more variety. So, to me, this is the foundation. And if we're gonna go, I don't. It's gonna be hard for me to keep track of a number of ten for you, Joe. But let me just say that you know in what I've proposed is an acronym for that are my foundational foods. And I'll just run through it real quick for everyone. The acronym is F goals, fruit and fermented greens and whole grains, omega three super seeds. Like Terry, you mentioned chia seeds. They're high in omega threes, but also, uh, also hemp seeds and, um, ground flax. A is for aromatics like onions and garlic. L is for legumes. And then S, S is for seaweed, shrooms, meaning mushrooms, and sprouts. So these to me are my sort of superfoods and I don't get them all in equal balance, but I'm trying to get a little bit of all of them on a daily basis.
0: Well, you know, I think a lot of people think of vegetarians and people who love legumes as serious and not having, um, not having a, a great sense of humor when it comes to food. And I'm looking at your, your page, Mexican hot chocolate brownies. And first of all, the photograph is fabulous, but these are brownies from black beans. That's bizarre. <laughs> tell me about this recipe because it makes me smile. Joe, it is a ninja trick, okay? Because
2: black beans have been shown. Black beans are the number one food in the blue zones. If you talk to Dan Buettner, the blue zones, by the way, for those who haven't heard, are the five places across the globe where people are living to be 100 years old at a rate that is off the charts. And they're not just living to an older age. They're living with great health into those older ages. So the number one food in these places is beans. They reduce our risk of heart disease, our risk of cancer, all of these different, there's so many benefits. And the average American is consuming just six pounds of beans per year. Meanwhile, 150 pounds of sugar and 270 pounds of meat. And, you know, we need to rebalance things. And this is a ripe opportunity because it's a ninja trick, Joe. You can, you can serve people delicious brownies. You don't have to tell them that the number one ingredient was black beans. They don't need to know that. <laughs> they rave about the brownies. And then when they're done, that's when you spring this on them and they will be shocked. And then you let them know that you also just reduce the risk of heart disease and cancer.
1: Now, Dr. B, as a gastroenterologist, I know that you must have seen patients who came to you and said, but I can't eat beans. They give me gas. I can't eat these high fiber vegetables. They make me so uncomfortable. Please tell us about FODMAP foods and what we should be doing about them.
2: Yes. So this is keeping it real. You know, this is keeping it real and being honest that I sit here and make these recommendations for people to increase their dietary fiber And the people who need this the most, I, by the way, call this the fiber paradox. The people who need dietary fiber the most because of its healing effects for your gut microbiome are the people who will struggle the most to consume dietary fiber. And the reason why goes back to something that I mentioned earlier, which is that we lean a hundred percent. On our gut microbes to digest the fiber for us. We are incapable of doing it, so if they're not in a good place, then it's hard for them to do, which leads to sloppy digestion. FODMAPs are—it's an acronym. I'll spare everyone the acronym. It's very nerdy, but essentially, what we're talking about are categories of food that are fermentable, meaning they can be turned into gas. Now, this doesn't sound very appealing to the average listener right now except let's take it one step further and acknowledge actually that most FODMAPs are actually prebiotic. Prebiotic means that they are food, they are fuel for our gut microbes. We want these FODMAPs living in a fiber-deprived world. We shouldn't be cutting back our sources of prebiotics. We should be enhancing them. And that, by the way, is entirely possible. You just need the right Proper approach in terms of how to reintroduce these particular foods. Now, a quick lay of the land what are the FODMAP foods? What includes fructose, which can be fruit most of the time. Um, It includes lactose. So, like, that's dairy products. 70% of the world struggles to process lactose. Um, It includes fructans, which you will find in garlic and onions and wheat. It also includes the galactans. So, like, Terry, you mentioned the beans galactans are what you will find in legumes that cause people to not only pass more, more wind, but also that's part of what makes them actually incredibly healthy. And then the last are the polyols, which are sugar alcohols. They include artificial sweeteners, but they also include natural sugar alcohols. They exist in our food. There's many foods that have them. So with this sort of broad thing, you know, the key here is this for many people who, particularly if you have irritable bowel syndrome, You may struggle with these foods. My message to you is that you don't need to struggle with these foods. You don't need to be uncomfortable, but you also don't need to eliminate these healthful foods that actually are really good for your gut microbiome. There is a process that you can go through in order to heal your gut and restore strength so that you become fully capable of processing and digesting these foods and enjoying them
1: and the process is what take it slow.
2: Generally speaking, that's the if you were to distill it down to three words, the three words would be low and slow. Which basically means that you would reduce the intake of the particular food that's disrupting or causing digestive distress. You would reduce it down to a low level and then much like building muscle at the gym, you know, you have to start with a weight that's appropriate for the muscle group if you go too high you can hurt yourself. So you go with an appropriate amount of weight, you lift that weight, you exercise the muscle, the muscle grows stronger, and then you come back next time and you do a little bit more. And that's exactly the process that your body goes through with your gut microbes. It's important for people to understand your gut microbiome is not just adaptable, it is perhaps the most adaptable part of your entire body. The food choices that you make today will start to impact your gut microbiome by tomorrow. And this, to me, is a very exciting exciting and uplifting opportunity because we're not victims and we're not stuck. You have the opportunity to heal. You just have to work through the process.
1: Dr. Will Bolsowitz, thank you so much for writing the fiber-fueled cookbook, which is beautiful and informative and for talking to us today on The People's Pharmacy.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's always a great opportunity to connect with you, Terry and Joe.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Will Bolsowitz, gastroenterologist and author. He's contributed to more than 20 articles in gastroenterology journals. In addition, his books include Fiber Fueled and his most recent, The Fiber Fueled Cookbook. His recipes are yummy, from sweet potato and black bean tacos to blueberry buckwheat pancakes.
0: And those um, those bean brownies.
1: Yes, the hot chocolate, Mexican hot chocolate brownies. They're wonderful.
0: And, you know, the, the cookbook is just beautiful as well. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for cookbooks, especially when they have beautiful photographs.
1: It does.
0: After the break, we'll switch gears a bit. And think about what our food is eating. Do you ever wonder about the impact of all those herbicides, pesticides, and fertilizers that factory farms use so freely to produce low-cost food?
1: Anne Bickley will talk about the health of the soil, and in particular, its microbiome. Which vegetables are grown differently now than they were in the past? Does it make any difference?
0: We've been talking about our own microbiomes. What about the microbiomes in the soil?
1: How can we get back to a more restorative way of farming and taking care of the soil and its microbes?
0: Find out how to support farms and farmers markets for our health now and in the future.
1: You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoa cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoa are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research.
0: Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoa daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance.
1: Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory.
0: Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code? People's 15. More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com.
0: And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com.
1: I'm sure you've heard that you are what you eat. Every nutrition expert we've interviewed over the decades encourages you to eat more fruits and vegetables. But how has farming changed over the last century? Has that altered the nutritional value of your produce?
0: Now we turn to Anne Bickley. She is a biologist and environmental planner. She and her husband, David Montgomery, are the authors of a trilogy of books about soil health, microbiomes, and farming. Dirt, the erosion of civilizations, the hidden half of nature, and growing a revolution. Their most recent book is... What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health.
1: Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Anne Bickley.
3: Yeah, hi there. Happy, happy to be here with you.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, Ann, I, I grew up on a dairy farm when I was young, and um, my uncle Leo used manure for fertilizer. It it was, as I said, a dairy farm. So there were lots of cows.
1: (laughs) So it was an inexpensive fertilizer.
0: And uh, he practiced crop rotation. He would plant clover and he would do a lot of terracing. And the cows got to eat grass and hay that he raised on the farm. Uh, So there wasn't a whole lot of... um, Stuff to buy. It was all you know, made made from scratch, so to speak. When we moved, I was about five years old. We would get a, a load or two of manure for for the vegetable garden, and my mother and father would plant tomatoes and peppers and asparagus and beans and peas and radishes and potatoes and turnips and green onions and and it was it was the. The fertilizer from the cows that really flourished and those those veggies grew really, really well, most of the food that we buy in the grocery store is grown in a completely different way, especially these days. Why does it matter? Why is it so different?
3: Yeah, wow you You really have kind of gone right to the heart of things there all of those things that that you just described about the way in which the dairy cows were living and i like to think about it as it's it's as much about the diet of a of a dairy cow what are what that dairy cow is eating as it is about the entire lifestyle of a dairy cow or really any ruminant and so we don't raise our animals the the most of the animals at least in north america are no longer raised that way they're they're living the feedlot lifestyle and eating very different things. And then in terms of the crops, the, the the fruits and vegetables that end up on our our breakfast, lunch, and dinner plates, they are not nourished through the kind of nutrients that an animal manure delivers to the soil. They're getting sort of mainline nutrients. These are synthetic fertilizers. Nitrogen is is the biggest one. And so why does all this matter? Why do farming effects matter um, for the nutrient qualities in our food? And with crops in particular, what we know about these synthetic types of fertilizers is that they will make a plant grow because any anybody listening out there who's ever grown a plant, farmer or gardener, you've seen the effects of nitrogen fertilizer. Boom, the biomass comes on. But at the same time, that particular pepper plant or tomato plant or what have you, it's also sort of, um, it's really reducing its conversation with the microbial communities around its root system that are the heart of the plant microbiome. And when all of that communication and conversations are, are reduced, what happens is it really sort of takes out the whole defensive system of a plant. And it may not take it completely out, but it reduces it to the point where the very compounds that plants make, which are, I'm sure your audience has heard of phytochemicals or also goes by the name of phytonutrients. Those plant made compounds generally, um, their levels are lower than in crops fertilized with Non synthetic fertilizers. And so, what that means for the plant is if phytochemicals are down, then farmers and gardeners have to replace those phytochemicals with things like pesticides. And what that means for foods in the human diet is that we're getting lower amounts and less diversity, completely really different phytochemical profiles in our diet. And although our defensive and protective system is different than a plant's, it also is um, it really depends on um, phytochemicals among other compounds and molecules. So it it really has sort of upended that proverbial apple cart, so to speak, when we move towards synthetic inputs and away from the kinds of things that you described.
1: And over the past decade or two, we've Come to appreciate much more acutely the importance of the microbial communities that we host uh you know, <laughs> um in and on our bodies tell us a little bit if you can, please, about the importance of the microbial communities in the soil that we are using to grow our crops,
3: yeah. And that's a great question, because I think everybody at this point is is now aware through just sort of the popularization uh, and and numerous articles on the human microbiome, and that the, most of our microbiome resides in our digestive tract and at that in the very lower part. And so that's where all of our microbial communities are um, helping us break down foods and extracting nutrients. And in fact, even turning some of the things in the human diet um, into other kinds of compounds. And so in the human being, our digestion is taking place inside of our bodies. And the green body of a plant, it's using the soil as its, its sort of entire digestive tract from top to bottom. And so this is why it's so critical about what it is we're adding to the soil and what we're doing to the soil, because we really want to try and work with the microbial communities that are a part of the plant microbiome because they are making nutrients uh, available to plants. And one of the best examples and most studied in that area is, I, I love to call them, I call them the fetching fungi. So these are mycorrhizal fungi, and they're sort of like this vast transportation system in the soil. And they're fetching things like phosphorus, like, like zinc, like iron. These are all uh, mineral elements, of course, that plants need for normal health and development, and that we also need in our diet that we take in through plants, so fetching fungi are, are one of these one part of the plant microbiome, and there's also not um, not able to move around in the soil, of course, to the extent that fungi can. But a multitude of bacteria, and they are a part of the the whole ecosystem and ecology that that plants rely on in the soil to carry out sort of the digestion and acquisition of nutrients. So it's it's every bit as important as the human microbiome is to our bodies, the, the plant microbiome is is equally important to how plants not only grow but also how they push back on on pests and pathogens.
0: One of the things that is always shocking to me is that, you know, the 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 factory farms, the the huge Hundreds or thousands of acres that are planted every year, year in and year out with, you know, all kinds of pesticides and herbicides and, and fertilizers that are chemically based. It's so different from what you describe in your book, what your food ate and what my uncle was doing. I mean, he was resting those fields. He was doing, you know, rotations And it it seems like he cared about the earth, the dirt. And these days, we sort of take it for granted. We go to the grocery store and we stock up on stuff that, you know, in the middle of the winter is made someplace far, far away. How, How do we begin to change things back to perhaps the way we grew up 40, 50, 60, 80 years ago when he was farming?
3: Yeah. I think I think part of the way that we do that, I mean, how I think about this problem and that question is that we have always been embedded in nature. Human beings have always been a part of nature embedded in it for better and for worse throughout our evolution, throughout the history of humanity. And it seems that despite the benefits of modern life, which which have served us all well in many respects, When we get too disconnected from nature, we forget things like soil. I always call soil sort of nature's greatest wallflower. There it is, sitting there on the sidelines in our minds. But in fact, it plays a central role in so many things. And part of the reason Dave and I wrote this book is we're trying to highlight and increase people's awareness about not just soil, but the health of the soil, the quality of life. Um, in our soils in which we grow our crops and which are also a big part of animal, um, agriculture. And so uh, I'm kind of on this mission to just increase awareness and people's knowledge of soil. And, and I've also been an avid gardener and any, any gardener out there. I mean, the minute you get your hands in, in the dirt and you start say nursing a plant along that's sick and trying to get it better or you've got some plants that's just growing gangbusters and you're like, yeah, I need more more of this. Whatever you're doing, plant, I'm, you know, I want more of that. You get you start to get back in touch with nature and experience some things that are I think both conscious and, and unconscious in in our in our minds and in our bodies. And so, it's not to say everybody needs to become a gardener or a farmer, but somehow connecting with nature, it will become much clearer to people I think about the importance of soil health to the crops and the animal foods that end up in the human diet. And I often say that, you know, as much as we are growing plants and that we are raising animals, at the root of all of this, the foundation of all of that is that we're also, in a very real sense, we're raising another kind of herd, another kind of crop, and that is the microbiomes, the microbiomes of our crops, of our animals, and even of our own bodies. Because when that's functioning and functioning normally, and I, I like to make this point, I'm not saying that anybody needs to be, you know, setting about to get some kind of supercharged microbiome. Nor do our ruminant animals need that, or our crops. we just need normal normal and functioning is is perfect. it's right. it's that Goldilocks spot so so really, that's what I'm advocating, and if we can get soil sort of back on our plates in terms of at least a consciousness that that's where all of this is taking place for a normal function of our microbiomes, you know i'd I'd be happier than a clam if we could get there
0: and as you look to the future what is your hope for family farms for farmers markets and how can our listeners support those family farms and markets so that not all of the food that they consume comes from a supermarket
3: yeah i i'd like to see agriculture as a whole and this is where consumers come in i'd like to see this may be idealistic. Well, I'm not, it not maybe it is idealistic, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. I'd like to see us sort of drop these labels and names that we give to agriculture, you know, conventional, organic, even regenerative. Because when we do that, we're sort of tribalizing ourselves and the way that we eat. And there's just all too much of that, I think already going on in various places in our society. Because the fact is, we need to move all of agriculture toward a place where we're improving the health of the soil. Because wherever you do that, if you're on a a mango farm or a coffee farm or a corn farm or a vegetable farm, when we start cultivating the health of the soil, we start growing and eating crops and also animal foods that have the full array of nutrients and compounds and molecules that have always been the foundation for human health. And so for your listeners and consumers, you know, I would say if you're going to a farmer's market, start talking with your farmer. I mean, most of these folks are really happy to talk about their farm and how they grow things. And, and I'd start out with a really basic question and say, Hey, I, I was listening to people's pharmacy or whatever other Um, program, they may be listening to an article that they read and say, I heard about this thing called soil health. You know, what do you think about that? What do you know about that? Um, what are you doing to support, you know, soil health on your farm? And I would say, you know, if you're talking to a farmer and they kind of come back at you with sort of a blank look, that that's, (laughs) that's kind of troublesome. Okay. (laughs) And at that point, you know, maybe move on to the next, the next farmer and say, you know, ask the same question because there's probably not a farmer out there uh in whatever system and type of farmer that they consider themselves that hasn't thought about the well-being of the, of the soil. And some are locked into systems and, and policies and subsidies that, that don't, for whatever reason, don't allow them to maybe farm totally in the way that they would like to. But if we consumers and eaters can be asking them more about this and be saying, well, I'd like to, you know, great. That sounds great to me, how you're dealing with soil health and your crops and your animals. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to shop from your booth or at your store or your farm stand from now on, because I really am interested in, you know, the healthy soil health, as well as how that ripples through to, you know, the foods in my own diet. So thank, you know, thanks a lot. I think that's really important that we start this conversation and also with your friends and family. I mean, a lot of people maybe haven't even heard that soil might have health. And I like this term because we resonate, health resonates with us. We know when we're feeling sick and certainly, you know, all of us having been through and still in um, a pandemic, you know, health is on our minds.
1: Anne Bickley, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today.
3: Oh, yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Ann Bickley, who has two decades of professional experience spanning field biology, watershed restoration, environmental planning, and public health. She and her husband, David Montgomery, are authors of What Your Food Ate How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health.
1: Earlier, we spoke with gastroenterologist Dr. Will Bolsowitz about his new book. The Fiber-Fueled Cookbook.
0: Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarsky engineered. Dave Grayton edits our interviews. B.J. Liederman composed our theme music.
1: This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy.
0: The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com.
1: And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A herbs.com
0: Today's show is number 1,312. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can post your comments to let us know what you think about today's interview. You'll also find a recipe or two. Share your story via email at radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning.
1: At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter and get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to the newsletter, you also have regular access to our weekly podcast, and you can find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering.
0: In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs
0: money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in.